Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. How are we doing? We good? I'm back. I'm excited. I, uh, I've been up on stage more today than I normally am, but I was out for a couple weeks, so I was like, I'm just going to stay up here the whole time. This is what I'm going to do. But uh, I, I am so thankful to be back. Two weeks ago, my bride, my beautiful bride, finished off our Deep Change sermon series talking about embracing your limits and internal chaos and finding the peace of God and prioritizing the right things. Didn't she do a great job? She did an amazing, amazing job. I was able to watch a little bit from Asia. We were 13 hours ahead where I was at. Uh, but I was able to watch for a, a portion of the day, and she just did a fantastic job. And uh, it's already true. It's true every time that she speaks, when, especially when I'm out, when I'm gone and she speaks, uh, I have people that are like, hey, why don't you leave more? Uh, and so I did have someone after the first service, and they no longer attend our church. So anyway, uh, I'm kidding. She did a fa- fantastic job, and I'm so thankful uh, for the message that she shared. She, she also shared on that day a little bit of the travel woes that we had. We were traveling to Manila, Philippines by way of Seoul, Korea. And just a li- few hours into the flight, we had a lady that was sitting right in front of, uh, of me, of us. There was a group of pastors, three pastors traveling together and she stood up and she collapsed. And so there was not a doctor on board, but there was a flight attendant who used to be a nurse practitioner and so she jumped in, started helping. She asked us if we would help get the lady up and kind of moved to where they could lay her out in, a, in an area of the, the aisle there to give her some, some care. And so she asked us to continue to help for a little bit. And so we did. And so I think she showed a picture, but I had a stethoscope on. I was taking blood pressure and pulse and, and oxygen levels and all kinds of things. She asked one of the other pastors that was with us if he would like to, to administer the IV. And he was like, you know what? You're already down there. Why don't you go ahead and do that? He did flick the cord because he said he saw that on Gray's Anatomy. He's not sure what it does, but he did, he did flick the, the cable there, but, uh, the wire. But I, I don't even know what it's called. That tells you how ill-equipped we were. But at the end of the whole thing, the lady was fine. They diverted us back to Anchorage, Alaska. We had to wait 12 hours there for the pilots to kind of reset their duty day. And then we went back onto Seoul. We got there and we didn't have a flight because we'd missed our flights. We had to wait 19 hours. What's supposed to take about a day and a half took us about four and a half to get there. Uh, but uh, when we got to uh, Anchorage, the lady that we had been assisting there, the flight attendant, she said, now, you guys are all from Atlanta, right? We said, yeah. And she said, now, what hospital do you guys work at? I was like, I'm so sorry if we've led you to believe that we are medical professionals at all. I felt like our behavior really showed you we didn't know what we were doing. I said, we're just pastors. She was like, oh, gosh, I've been cussing all day. I was like, we have two. It's fine. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But... But she was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, it's totally fine. You, you did great. And uh, so here's what I want you to do. From this day forward, I'd like for you to refer to me as Dr. Isaacs. Um, I am not a doctor, but I did play one on an airplane. So uh, I feel like that would be appropriate for you to do that. Uh, but once I got to the Philippines, it was a fantastic trip. Like I just kept telling people, if you can get me to the Philippines, it's going to be awesome. And it was. Uh, we, we connected there to our missionary, Johnny Moore who is a longtime partner for us as a church, and he does amazing ministry in several countries in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Myanmar, and they're in the Philippines partnering with Sidewalk Ministries. And I sent you a video a few weeks ago, uh, but they minister every single Saturday all year long to approximately 10,000 children, just ministering to them, preaching the gospel, feeding them, giving them gifts, 
Uh, and it was amazing to watch these children, many of them that have grown up now, and they're teaching at each of these 76 sites that they have every single Saturday. It is a phenomenal ministry. Uh, it comes out of the Lighthouse Community Church there in Manila. I was able to speak in one of their services on that Sunday. And just a great reminder, we were 13 hours ahead, that we were worshiping God really while many of you were asleep. And then, you know, as we were going to bed, you were worshiping God. And all day long, worship is taking place around the world. It just reminds me that the kingdom of God is bigger than Canton, Georgia. The kingdom of God is bigger than Georgia and the United States. And there's amazing things that are taking place all around the globe and so I'm thankful that we get to be a part of that. And so I represented you while I was there. And so on behalf of those children and the people that are being ministered to there, on behalf of our kids upstairs and our students tonight, uh, let me just say thank you for your generosity and your faithfulness. Thank you for your prayers for me while I was on the trip. Uh, I really am so thankful for all that God did while we were there. But uh, we just, we believe that generations matter. We talked about that even a little bit during our child dedication, but we exist because generations matter. We believe that God is a God of generations we draw it out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, that this is for you, your children, and your children's children. And some of you are second, third, fourth generation of faith because your moms and dads or grandparents, they raised you in that. Now, you had to make a personal decision for yourself, but it was modeled for you. Others of you, you did not have that context at all, but you have placed a stake in the ground, your first generations of faith, and you say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And you're changing the narrative of your family. And I'm just cheering you on, and we want to help you and support you in that. But we exist because generations matter. And so we believe that the children that are being ministered to around the world, we're going to support that. And the children that are being ministered to right now upstairs, we're going to dedicate children. We're going to invest in groups. It's why we do what we do on Sundays and throughout the week and throughout the year. And it's really the heart behind why we do our Marriage Matters Conference. I know you just heard about it. We've already advertised it and announced it, and it's coming but let me just remind you that this Tuesday is Valentine's Day, guys. <clears throat> and other than getting her a vacuum cleaner or whatever else you've planned to get her, you need to register for the Marriage Matters Conference. We, we, we believe it's a great gift you could give to one another. It's going to be a really special weekend, March 10th and 11th. That Friday night is going to feel like a date night. We want you to get dressed up, come here for a nice dinner. We're going to laugh a lot, have a good time that night. And then on Saturday, we're going to dig into the practicals of relationships. So married people, engaged people, if you're dating seriously and you just want to help push this thing over the line, maybe bring them to the conference, we'll help you nudge them, okay? We'll do what we can for that. But it's just going to be a really great conference. We want you to be a part of that. Uh, it, it'll be exciting. And then next week, just last thing I'll say, next week is baptism. We want to baptize you. If you have recently made a decision to follow Christ, we would love the chance to celebrate with you as your church family. So you can go online and register for that so that we can baptize you. Because again, generations matter. It's why we do what we do. It's, it's why we exist. Last week, we started a brand new series called Real Families. Pastor Aaron did a phenomenal job uh, sharing with us that there are no ideal families. We, we all want it. We all want to claim it. We want to show the pictures on social media. We don't want to show the picture before the picture where we're like pulling ears to get them in the picture and you will smile. I'm telling you, you know, like we're just going to do the, those kind of things to get the ideal picture. But real families is what we all have. It's what we all are. And we use the story of King David really before he became King David as he was anointed and just talked about the brokenness and messiness of his family. We're going to continue in that all month long. But Pastor Aaron told us that God has a purpose for you. It's not by accident that you were born into the family that you were born into. Even if there's messiness and brokenness there, God has a purpose for you and he has a purpose for your family. And so you've got to dig into that. What does that look like? What is that purpose and how do we trust God for that purpose. And so today we're going to continue with the story of King David. He's now become king. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to go with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 
2 Samuel, we're going to spend all of our time there in chapters 11 and 12. But 2 Samuel, it's about a third of the way through the Old Testament. This is a really pivotal time in the history of Israel and God's people. And uh, this is, we've now moved from King Saul to King David. And uh, now, after David has been king for quite some time, we come to this story found in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. We begin reading in verse 1. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, I want to split this message kind of into two parts, and I want to talk to each of us individually for just a few minutes about sin and the consequences of sin. We don't believe that you just get to choose kind of what is right and what is wrong based on how you feel. We believe that according to God's word, there are things that are right, that honor God, and there are things that are wrong. They dishonor God and who he is calling us to be as we pursue relationship with him. Now, you are not saved by works. It, it, your, your works don't save you. You can be the best moral person you want to be and do all the good, right things, but you and I are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way we're saved. But there are some things that we do by way of works after that that just honor God. They, they tell people who we are and whose we are after we have been saved. And so works don't save us, but works kind of show that we have been saved. And so we believe that right and wrong exists. And there's a lot of people, especially in present day, that would try to convince you that right is determined in the eye of the beholder in the moment based on how you feel and the circumstances and what's going on around you. And they tell you that there is no absolute truth, which is, guess what? An absolute truth. That makes no sense, right? But what we believe is that it's not subjective. We don't believe in subjective morality, which means it's subject to you and it's subject to me and what's right for you is different than what's right for me. We believe that there are absolute truths and absolute rights and wrongs. And it begins really at the beginning of humanity, that God told Adam and Eve, even before the Ten Commandments, even before the law, that God told Adam and Eve, don't do this. Don't go and eat. You can have any tree, any fruit of the garden but abstain from this one. So there was something that was wrong that they should abstain from. They chose not to do that, and there was consequences for their actions. We see later that then there's the Ten Commandments. We see later that there's the law. We see Jesus come as the fulfillment of the law in the New Testament. And he says, hey, come and follow me. He was the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. But we believe that from the beginning to the end of Scripture that there is right and there is wrong, and God punishes and judges sin. And so in this story, we are introduced to the idea that David does something wrong. He does something. We see this over and over in the story of the children of Israel. He does something that's right in his own eyes, but it is wrong in the eyes of God. He, he commits adultery. He has an affair with someone that is not his wife. It's actually the wife of someone else. And so he takes it upon himself to, to do something that is wrong. And so he shouldn't have done that, right? I mean, when we say like he did something wrong, that kind of minimizes it was sinful. It was, it was an incorrect behavior. It was iniquity, transgression, however, whatever word you want to use from scripture. But before we even get to what he did that was wrong, let's look at how he got there. In verse one of what we just read, it says this, in the spring, 
At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. But David remained in Jerusalem. David got in trouble because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. David got in trouble because he should have been with his men out to war, but he wasn't there. He stayed in Jerusalem. There are some things that you and I know that if we go to these places, we do these things like like it's going gonna, it's gonna to potentially lead us down the wrong path. Now, I'm not trying to be like this, this strict, like really judgmental, legalistic type person. I'm just saying like my mom taught me when I was a kid, nothing good happens after nine, right? The older I get, I'm convinced she was wrong. It's 830. Nothing good happens after 830. But if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes just being in the wrong place makes it easier to do the wrong thing. Now, being in the wrong place doesn't absolutely mean you're going to make wrong decisions, but it's so much easier to make those wrong decisions when we're in the wrong place, maybe with the wrong people. And so what happened here is David should have been out to war, but instead he sent someone else. He kind of abdicated his role to someone else, and he stayed in Jerusalem. And so I think for all of us, the first challenge that we see here is just be where you're supposed to be. Just do what you're supposed to do. Don't be where you shouldn't be. So then David saw her. He's walking around on the top of the roof. He's maybe kind of an insomniac that night. He can't sleep. And so he's walking around on top of the roof, and he sees her. Now, at this point, no sin has taken place. You and I are not necessarily responsible for what kind of flashes across our eyes. We're not necessarily responsible for crazy thoughts that enter our head. I remember my dad telling me when when I was a kid, he said that he got into an elevator one night, and he said this big guy got on the elevator next to him, and he said he kind of was real tired. He was headed to the room, and he said he just leaned his head back against the wall of the elevator, And he said he had this random thought, like, what if I just punch that guy right in the face? (laughs) That's not my dad's nature, first of all. And he said, the next thought that came to him is, well, if you hit him, he's probably going to hit you back. So let's don't do that. You're not responsible for all the crazy thoughts that enter your head. Those crazy thoughts are not sinful. But what you do with those thoughts can lead to sin. So David's walking around the roof, he sees her, and then he does something. He inquires about her. He sends a messenger to face, hey, who is this woman? So they go and find out. They come back and they bring him a message. Hey, this is Bathsheba. Here's who her dad was. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's at this moment that he should have walked away. He should have gone back to his house. He, he, He should have gone and done something else. But this is the moment of temptation. This is the moment where you have to decide between what is right and what is wrong. And instead of walking away, David sends, I think if I read this correctly, a different group of messengers. He didn't want to send the same guys who had just given him that information. He sends a different group of messengers to go and bring Bathsheba to him. And so when you and I have crazy thoughts, when we have random things, when something through no fault of your own kind of flashes in front of your eyes, that is not sin. But what you do with the next thought determines what's going to lead you down this path. And so I would say what I say to our kids, what I say to my sons, you got you to change your thoughts. You got to bounce your eyes. You got to distract yourself. You need somebody to hold you accountable. You pray and ask God to give you the fruit of the spirit, which is self-control and ask him to keep his promises there and be controlled by the spirit of God and not by our flesh and sinful desires. And so we say, God, in this moment, I don't want to do what is wrong. I want to do what is right. And so we go this other way. But David didn't do that. He didn't make that decision He didn't take his thoughts captive. He sends for her, and he has an affair with Bathsheba. And if it would have ended there, it would have been terrible. But it didn't end there. David did what we often do. And instead of confessing his sins, he tries to cover up his sins. And so he calls for Uriah to come back from war. 
He decides in his mind, he's able to justify this behavior. He says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. She told me she's pregnant, but if I bring her husband home, nobody knows yet. And if he comes and he visits me and gives me an update on the war and I send him back to his house, then later when she announces she's pregnant publicly, they'll think, oh, well, Uriah came home from the war, so that's fine. But after he meets with Uriah, Uriah lays at the door to guard the king's palace. The next morning, David gets word. He's like, hey, why didn't you go to your wife? And he said, because my brothers don't have that same privilege. I'm not going to do that. I'm here to protect you. I'll just join your guard until I go back. He tries to get him drunk, send him to his wife. He still doesn't do it. So now he sends a letter with Uriah back to Joab at the front lines. He said, hey, wherever the fighting gets the worst, wherever it's the fiercest, wherever the enemy is attacking us, I want you to send Uriah right to the front, to the tip of the spear, right there at the, at the front. And then when it gets the worst, I want you to pull everybody else back. Now he's involved someone else in his cover-up. That's what takes place. Word gets sent to David that this has taken place. And now Uriah is dead through no fault of his own. And here's the truth that all of us need to remember. When we try to cover up sin instead of confessing sin, things always get worse every single time. Every single time. You're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. That's not permission to sin. It's the reality of the human experience. But when we don't confess our sin and we try to cover up our sin, it always gets worse every single time. So the prophet Nathan shows up and he comes and he tells King David a story. He said, King David, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you this story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has everything you could possibly imagine that he would want. The poor man, he only possesses this one little lamb. It's all he has. It's all he loves. It's all he wants. This lamb goes with him everywhere. It's not a pet. It's his best friend. And this lamb comes and at night sleeps there at the foot of his bed. I mean, it's, it's his prized possession. But one day the rich man's having a party and he goes and takes the lamb from the poor man to use at his party. And David is... I mean, so furious. He's like, who is this man? I will punish him. I'll be the one to take care of it. You tell me who it is. And Nathan points his finger in David's face in spiritual rebuke. And he says, you are that man. It's you. It's you. Look at what we read here in 2 Samuel. This is chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, underline this, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. And you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. When I read these verses here in chapter 12, there's two sad realities and one great truth that I find in these verses. First, we are often blind to our own sin and angry about the sin of others. You think about what Nathan was confronting. He he told him a story and, and David was so numb to his sin or had covered it up so much publicly that he had almost covered it up a little bit privately that he was angry about the rich man taking from the poor man and did not acknowledge that the story was about him until he was confronted with it. I think that's so true of all of us, that we get so outraged at the sins of other people, but we don't want anybody judging us because we judge the actions of other people, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, right? We 
We cover it up. We know what we would have done, what we were thinking, what we should have done. We, we know we will ask forgiveness or we intend to ask forgiveness or we're going to have a conversation later and nobody knows yet, so we'll figure a way out of it. And so we do all of those things behind the scenes. But when we see anybody else with the slightest misstep, we get angry and start screaming and yelling. And I would say, hey, be really careful about that. Really, really careful about that. Because I think the the louder we want to scream about someone else's sin, often it's telling on us that there's something going on on the inside of us that we don't want to be judged for. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 says, And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? It's a verse so many of us know. We may be quoted in different contexts, but this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 7, it's talking about judgment. It says that the same standard that you use to judge others will be used against you. It says, hey, be careful when you start pointing out the imperfections and the missteps of others because you've got some stuff going on on the inside of you too. Now, do I believe that we should hold one another accountable? Absolutely. Do I believe in loving context and loving relationship with one another that we should even call out sin in each other's lives? Say, hey, you're better than this. This is not who you should be, not what you should be doing. Absolutely, I think we should. But when we begin to scream out loud publicly about the sins of others, we need to be careful because so often it's because we are hiding something on the inside of us and we're projecting and trying to deflect so people don't see what's happening on the inside of us. The louder we scream, we think it sounds more righteous. It's actually hypocrisy. Be careful. Be careful. Start with me. Be, I got to be careful. We believe in the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God. And in loving relationship, we should hold one another accountable. But we got to be careful that we don't become so numb to our own sin that it becomes easy to judge other people. we got to be careful. That's what I see here in this story. God will judge and punish sin. But look at verse 8 here and see this nature of God on full display. I told you to underline part of it. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. This is definitely a reflection here of the nature of God and how he responds to us and, and what he does for us. But if we're not careful, we kind of turn into King David in this instance. And really, if, if you go all the way back in the story, David's only king because Saul felt guilty of this. Saul went from building altars to God to building monuments to himself. We become self-made men and women. We think it's all about us. We're convinced that we are the reason we have what we have. And it's our good deeds and our good works. And because of our talent, because of our charisma, and we forget that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That it's all because of him. And that God has blessed us and given us the things that we possess. And what Nathan said to David is he said, everything that you have is awesome. But if it wasn't enough, God would have continued to bless you and give you more. But you became deceived. He came to a moment of temptation. He came to a moment of possible deception. And he believed the manipulation of truth that the enemy often does in all of our lives. We believe there's an enemy. And we believe that that enemy, according to scripture, he really just has one purpose that's fleshed out three different ways. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. But the problem is when he tempts us, what does he do? He promises us more and better. He's lying. Like he's, he's not giving you more or better. It will not make your life better. Sin and temptation will steal from you. It will kill you. It will rob you. And it will destroy your life every single time. It's what he does. It is his nature. He can't do anything but to lie and to deceive and to try to destroy your life. And so when we come to moments of temptation... 
when we hear that kind of, you know, the little image in the cartoons, this is not how it works, but when we see like the good little angel over here and the devil on our shoulder, just shove this guy off your shoulder. He's lying to you. He's not telling you the truth. It will not be as awesome as he makes it sound. It is a momentary thing that's going to cost you far more than you want to pay. The second thing that I see here in this story is Nathan's continual reference to Uriah. His continual reference. I've read this story hundreds of times. I've never actually seen this part as I read it or as I've read it until this week as I was preparing for today. I often think about Nathan rebuking David and talking about Bathsheba, and he did. But there's like three or four instances where he references Uriah. He said, you took, you took Uriah's wife. You, you killed Uriah by the sword. By the sword of the Ammonites, you killed Uriah. And he's referencing Uriah. Now, I don't know anything about Uriah other than what I found in Scripture, this story, and there's a couple of other references about him. I don't know his character other than what's written. He might have been a snake. He might have been the worst guy in the world. Here's what I know. He was off to war fighting with his brothers. That's what he was supposed to do. And when the king called him home, he didn't take the easy way out. He didn't go to his his house to see his wife. His brothers wouldn't have gotten that privilege. So he came now and defended and protected the king. It seems kind of this high character type thing. And he's sent back to war and he's killed through no fault of his own. I recognize as I was praying for you this week that some of you sit in this room and through no fault of your own, The sin of someone else has cost you a lot. It's cost you a lot. I mean, you didn't didn't deserve it. You you were just doing what you thought you were supposed to do. You were out fighting. That's what you were supposed to do. You were out doing your job. That's what you were supposed to do. And someone else betrayed you. Someone else lied to you. Someone else lied about you. And it cost you your job. It cost you your marriage, maybe. It cost you your kids. And I, I don't want to tell you that this is true of you, but can I just tell you what I would want? I would want them dragged into the public square, and I would want everybody to know all that they did and what it should have cost and what it sh- how it should have. That's what I would want, and maybe that's what you want or wanted. But when I read this passage here, What I'm reminded of is that God sees. We want everybody to see, and maybe that will happen or maybe it won't. But God sees. God knows. God, through the prophet Nathan, said to David, he said, you you hurt a man who didn't deserve it. You took from him. You took his very life. You took everything that was valuable to him. God saw And God sees where you're at, and he sees the hurt and the pain that you've experienced and all the tears that you've cried, and he knows. And then what Nathan said to David is he said, the sword will never leave your house. The sword sword that you've used will never leave your house. There is judgment. There is consequence. There is punishment. And while you and I sometimes want to be the one that administers that consequence and that punishment, we want to see it take place, we don't know all of how it took place here. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks in David's family. But God sees and God knows and he's taking care of it. And I hope that that brings some comfort to you. And then we see after he's confronted what David says. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. It's never too late to confess. Now, 
we should confess early rather than late. But confession is always the right thing to do. It's always the right thing to do. You should always confess. You should always come clean. You should always confess your sins to God. You should confess your sins to those you hurt. It is the right thing to do. But even with confession, there are consequences. So like I believe that the moment that you confess your sins to God and you say, God, I need you to forgive my sins, I believe he does in an instant. But there are consequences for your actions and behavior, and there are of mine. And so the example that I've used since I was a youth pastor when I was talking to students, and maybe this was a terrible example talking to students, I'm not really sure. But I said, hey, if you kill a guy, so maybe that was a bad example for middle schoolers. I'm not really sure. But if you kill a guy, and as soon as you do, you say, God, I messed up. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I believe in the instant you ask it, God forgives you, but you're going to prison. There are consequences for your actions. There's earthly consequences, even as God takes care of the eternal consequences. He pays the price and atones for your sins and mine, but there are earthly consequences. And in this conversation with Nathan, we saw the sword will never leave your house. That's a consequence we're going to talk about in two weeks. But we also see that the child that was conceived between David and Bathsheba, that child gets ill and eventually passes away. It's one of the consequences of this behavior, this action. But then after a period of mourning, David then takes Bathsheba as his wife and she conceives again and Solomon was born to that union. It's this beautiful picture of the redemption of God that God used even a union that was started in sin but then made right and God used Solomon as a part of the lineage of the house of David that eventually brings Christ to the earth. Beautiful picture of redemption. And so you're like, okay, where are we going with all this? Here's the bottom line. Just do what's right. Just do what's right. You're like, okay, well, that sounds simple. I mean, it is and it isn't. Just be where you're supposed to be. And don't be where you're not supposed to be. That's a double negative. I'm sorry. Like, just be where you're supposed to be and don't be where you're not supposed to be and just do what's right. And when you come to a moment of decision, listen to the voice of the good shepherd who is leading and guiding our lives and ignore the voice of the deceiver who is trying to convince you that it's more and it's better, but it's actually going to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Just do what's right. And when you mess up, and we all have and we all will, confess it right away to God and to those that we've hurt. And then pay the consequences. Now, that's not permission to sin. It's a warning about sin. I've referenced my dad and my mom already a couple of times today. But I remember as a kid, my dad quoting someone else. But this is what he used to tell me. And I've never forgotten it. Even in bad moments, I've never forgotten this. And it always rings true. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. And cost you more than you want to pay. Every single time. That's what sin will do. And so we keep that in mind. So what does this have to do with real families? What does this have to do with real families? Well, families are made up of us, right? Sinful, broken, imperfect people. Husbands and wives, sons and daughters, grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we make up these real families that make up our church and our community. And that's unfortunately who we are. 
That's what fills your house and what fills mine. So, so what do we do? We chase Jesus with all of our hearts, each member of the family, from the youngest to the oldest. And we recognize that we are imperfect. And so we, we say to him, God, thank you that you are not looking for perfection. You're just looking for pursuit. And so I point my arrow towards Jesus and I just chase him with all of my heart to the best of my ability. And wherever I get off track, I just confess my sins to him and I turn that arrow back to him as quickly as I possibly can and I just chase him with all of my heart because that's what he's asking of us in these real families. So what do we do when we mess up? James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You confess quickly, as quickly as possible. You don't try to cover it up. It always gets worse. Don't try to cover it up. Confess it. Confess it to God and confess it to one another. That's how we bring healing and wholeness into our family. Some of the pain in your family and in mine is self-inflicted. We've sinned. And now we're hiding it. There's brokenness. There's disconnect. There's lack of trust. Maybe it's unconfessed sin. And I promise you that the pain of a hard conversation to confess some things is going to be way easier than the conversations that come when they find out from somebody else. You're like, man, my family's a mess. My family's a mess. There's so much going on in our home right now, in our marriage right now with my kids or with my parents or with the in-laws. or It's a mess. Well, wherever it's related to any type of sin, it's easy for us to sit and to point the blame at them. Well, if God would just do this in them, if they would just see what they did. And we pray that God does that. But before we ask him to do that, we start with us. And we say, God, I've done wrong. And wherever I have done wrong, forgive me. And wherever I've done someone else wrong, I want to go to them and confess it. And God, I want to see vindication. I, I want to see you judge and punish. And I want them pulled out into the public square. But God, if that's not what you do, you see and you hear and you know. And so, God, I trust you. So I'm going to forgive. I'm going to forgive. It's going to be hard. But I'm going to forgive and I'm going to trust. I'm going to build that trust back. And in our families, when we confess our sins to each other and we pray for each other, there's healing. There's healing. And just like what we see with David and Bathsheba at the end of this story, God can redeem what seems to be broken. God can birth something new. The best days of your marriage could be in front of you. The best days of your family could be out before you because that's who God is. In a few months, we're going to celebrate Easter. But for us, Easter is not a day on a calendar. It's the power of God to resurrect things that seem dead back to life. And so it could be that you need the power of Easter in your home, the power of Easter in your marriage the power of Easter in your relationships, as we confess our sins one to another and we pray for each other that we might be healed. That we might be healed. That's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you, is that healing would come in your home. That healing would come in your relationships. I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment before we conclude today. 
If you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, the first thing that I need to do is I need to ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm a sinner. I need him as my Savior. I want him to be my Lord. And I want to acknowledge that right now. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? I want to pray for you. Nobody's looking around. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. And now if you would say, nobody's looking around. Okay, I promise you. I give you my word. It's just me looking right now. I want to pray for you. But if you would say, Jeremy, for me, there's some things in my family right now that need the healing touch of God. Sin, unconfessed sin, hurt, pain, brokenness. And I'm asking God to help us in the next few days to bring about healing. Maybe through confession, through hard conversations, whatever it takes. I'm asking God to bring healing into the brokenness of our family. If that's you, would you lift your hand? Thank you so much. There's a ton of hands today. I promise you, you're not by yourself. I promise you, you're not by yourself. You can put it right down. God, I love you so much. And God, I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you for those that are watching online today. Couldn't be here. And God, first I pray for those who have acknowledged their need for you to be the Lord and Savior of their life. God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for love and forgiveness. We thank you for Jesus and the cross. And so God, I thank you now that you forgive those who've acknowledged that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And God, I pray that they would allow you to be their Lord, to lead and guide and direct them in the days ahead. We thank you for the decision that they've made today and we celebrate with them. We want to equip them and resource them and walk with them. But God, I just thank you for the decision that they've made. And God, now I pray for every hand that was lifted in this room and maybe those that are watching from a distance, they lifted a hand to acknowledge that there's some stuff in their family that needs healing right now. God, I don't know all the details, but you do. And so God, I pray right now for your healing touch in every heart and in every life, in every home. God, I pray that wherever there is unconfessed sin in these families, that, Lord, confession would come. It's going to be hard. I'm sure it will be painful, but, Lord, would you just go before us there? Would you extend grace to all of our hearts to hear what needs to be said and to respond in kind? And, God, maybe it's not unconfessed sin. Maybe it's just past hurt and pain and brokenness there. God, would you, would you bring healing? Would you restore trust? Would you restore the faith we have in each other? Do a healing work. Let us make some hard decisions. Let us put up some guardrails and make some decisions that will guide and lead us forward in ways that speak to your redemption power. But God, just let us go where we're supposed to go and not where we're not supposed to be. And let us just do what is right blessing of our families that you've given to us. Let us acknowledge that. And God, we, we trust that you see and you know and you're enough. And so we let go of some hurt and some pain 
and we just trust that you've got it. And God, I cannot wait to hear the stories of redemption and healing and forgiveness in the days ahead as you restore brokenness in families and heal. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.